Thank you. Good morning. It's so nice to be here in the morning. I'm usually part of our evening service, and getting up on a Sunday is not part of my usual routine. Um, but I love being here. I love seeing all these different faces on a Sunday morning, and I'm so glad to be here. I lead a home group with my good friend Ashley, and I'm also part of the youth team here at Grace Church. Um, I don't know if there's any young people in the room this morning. I've been looking around for them, but I, I think they might also be asleep. So um, we've just taken a group of 23 young people to an event called New Day over in Norwich, and just had a wonderful time. We've seen the goodness and kindness of God in the way that he shows up in young people's lives when they come and they say, I'm giving this week to you, I'm here, I'm open. He just meets with them, and it's been wonderful. So if you've got any questions about how it was, I think actually looking around, I'm the only person in the room that was there. So you can come and ask me um, or any of the team if you see us during the week or any young people you know that have gone. Um, young people love it when adults from church come and talk to them. So um, feel free to do that. And if there are any young people that I haven't spotted, my encouragement to you this morning is that, that God is the same. He is the same here as he is at New Day. He's the same when we worship at Grace Church as when we worship with thousands. So if there are any of you in the room that I haven't spotted, open your heart to him again today because he wants to meet with you again. Now, teenagers can be a bit difficult to read and understand at times. I've been on the team for seven years and I still can't keep up with what they're into, what they're talking about. And I wonder if you've ever tried reading something that was difficult to understand. Maybe you tried reading a classic novel. You had this little bookmark that said 50 books you need to read in your lifetime, or maybe it's just me. And you picked one and you decided, oh, I'm going to read this book. And you started and you thought, actually, the words are a bit hard. It's a bit dated. And I'd rather just watch the film. Although, actually, discussion this week is that the new Persuasion film is a bit hit and miss. So I don't know if anyone's watched it. Um, or maybe you've had an email at work that's a bit hard or complicated. It's full of confusing words and acronyms that you didn't know existed. What I've learned recently is that a lot of different industries use the same acronyms, but for different things. So it's really confusing. Or maybe you're currently at uni or school, and you've been asked to do a bit of pre-reading ahead of a class. I remember one time in my first year of uni, I was asked to read about 30 pages on chords and harmony in, about the album Asia by Steely Dan. And if anyone knows Steely Dan, they're a bit funky, so it went up completely over my head, showed up to the class, and the guy said, did anyone understand the reading? We all looked at each other a bit like, did you understand, do you understand? And everyone shook their heads, and he said, good, you weren't supposed to, which felt a bit harsh. But <laughs> his point there was it was to make us think and to ask questions. Today, we're continuing our series in Matthew with a bit of a tricky passage. And it's the sort of passage that in my regular Bible reading, I'll be sat there with my breakfast, I'll be reading it, and then I'll sort of think, I didn't get that, and I'll close it, and then do the exact same thing when I get round to it on my next go through the New Testament. Today we're in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. This is quite a long discourse that Jesus gives. There are five throughout the book of Matthew, and this is the last one. So it's a bit of a lengthy passage, and if you do have a, a physical Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to open it up because we're covering a lot of text and we don't have enough time to read it here this morning, or we'll be here all day. I'm going to start from verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV, and the words should appear on the screen. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a minute. You've left the temple of Jesus. You've gone up out of the city and onto the Mount of Olives. In front of you, you would have seen this impressive view of the wonder that was the second temple. Recently built up and developed, it's the pride of your people, the dwelling place of God, the centerpiece of the city. Of course, they want to marvel at it and point it out. But then Jesus says it will be completely destroyed. What a shock to them. No wonder that they then go on to ask, well, when will this happen? Notice then that at the same time, they also ask, what are the signs of the end of the age? For the disciples, these events are inseparable. Surely the destruction of the temple will mean the end of the world, right? Well, let's read on and see how Jesus answers. In verse 4, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then skip into verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, this is tricky stuff. And we have to come to this sort of text with humility and acknowledge that it's not written in a style that we're used to reading. Here Jesus is speaking in the language of the Old Testament prophets. It's a language full of symbolism and imagery that at times is open to some different interpretations. I must confess that the prophets are the books of the Old Testament that I'm least familiar with. I read a chapter of the Old Testament each morning and usually end up spending about a year going through the prophets. And every time I go through them, I read it in the morning and it feels fresh to me, usually because I forget what they've said within a few minutes of reading it. 
And that's not to say that it doesn't do me good. I believe what the Bible says, that it's God's word and it brings us, to, uh, brings us life. And I feel encouraged that one day I'll get to know them better. But, and I know that there's fruit that comes just from reading it each day. But today, instead of engaging with the arguments or potential disagreement in our text, we're going to focus on what we can know from the text, what we do agree on. I'm sure you're pleased to hear it. Jesus begins us answering the disciples' question by describing two events that are historically separate but theologically entwined. The first one has already happened. That's the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in the year 70 AD. And the second one is yet to come. That's the physical return of Christ at the end of the present age. Now, we don't often talk about the second coming, maybe out of fear of wacky, date-predicting, false teaching, or maybe just because it's a tricky doctrine for us to understand. My hope is that by looking at this passage together today, we can make much of Christ, the one who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Notice that Jesus starts his answer by saying what are not signs of his coming, but rather things to look out for. False Christs that are people pretending to be him who aren't. Wars and earthquakes. All these things are not signs, and we're not to be alarmed by them. I like the way the message version of the Bible describes these things. It says, these things are routine history. It's the way that the world works in its current fallen and broken state. And history testifies to this. The world may often look crazy, but as verse 13 says, we are to stand firm throughout it all. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. This was a term often used by the prophets to describe a period of suffering that must lead up to the new age. Just that in the same way, uh, the birth of a child is both something wonderful and particularly in Jesus' time, dangerous. Then Jesus starts talking in verse 15 about an approaching crisis that will fall on Judea. The temple will be defiled, and the Christians are to run for their lives. Here he is talking about the destruction of the temple to the Roman Empire in the year 70 AD. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that over one million Jews were killed during the siege that ended a four-year war. Just imagine the scene with me. You've got four years of war. You're trapped in a city with no food. The temple is coming down. There's chaos and destruction all around you. Who's coming to save you? Who will deliver you? Well, Jesus knows that this crisis would have been a golden opportunity for false saviors, eagerly welcomed in the people's desperation and time of need. So he warns them to look out for pretenders. Instead, he says that his coming will be like lightning, coming from the east to the west, visible for all to see. There will be no doubt of what is happening. Friends, see what the text is saying here. There will be a day when the king comes again. And when he comes, it will be in an earth-shattering way that leaves the world changed forever. The word that Matthew uses here is a Greek word uh, called parousia. It's a word that's used for the coming of a ruler in a powerful way that evidences their authority. The second coming of Jesus is a future reality that transforms our thinking about the age that we live in, and we'll see through the rest of the text today that how we live now really does matter. But when will it happen? 
Well, we don't know. See verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. By this, Jesus is talking about the limitations he voluntarily takes on in the incarnation. If you think about it, he limits himself to his physical body. So here he also limits his knowledge. Michael Green says, limitation of knowledge is a necessary condition of a real incarnation. This phrase should not be an issue to us. However, what should be an issue to us is date predicting. This is inappropriate considering what Jesus has said here, and we should be wary of those who attempt this. I was just a toddler when we hit the year 2000, so I was unaware of all the predictions around that date. But there's a lot online particularly that we should be careful of. We should disregard this in light of what our text says here. Instead, Jesus tells us to be ready. Now, I wonder if you've ever felt like you weren't ready for something. When I think of this, I think of house viewings. Um, this summer is the first summer in seven years that I've not moved house in Nottingham. Praise the Lord. So I've been on a, a lot of house viewings, and I've had a lot of people come and view my houses over the year. They've all been rented houses. And sometimes you have this moment where you're viewing a house, and you go and knock on a bedroom, and the door's closed, and there's no response. And you're usually with an agent or someone showing you around the house, and then they knock again. Maybe they've got a key to the room if it's locked. And there's no response. You think, okay, the person must be out and have just closed their door. Then you open the door, and you find, to someone's shock horror, that they are in bed, maybe sometimes awake because it's the middle of the afternoon, with a laptop on their bed, just watching Netflix, and they weren't aware that you were coming. They weren't ready. Maybe you've been that person yourself. <laughs> Jesus goes on to talk about his coming in four parables. And if you've got a Bible, this is from chapter 24, verse 43, through to 25, verse 30. He knows that this is a particularly tricky thing to get our heads around, so he explains in helpful ways that would have been uh, helpful to the disciples. The takeaway point of the first three parables is to be ready and prepared for his return. And the point of the fourth is to be faithful in the meantime. In the first one, he comes unexpectedly like a thief in the night. If the homeowner um, knew he was coming, he would not have been robbed. In the second, he comes earlier than expected, and the misbehaving servant gets caught red-handed on the job. And then in the third, he comes later than expected. The five foolish bridesmaids run out of oil for their lamps, and they miss the bridegroom as they have to go out and buy more. We must be ready the return of the master, the bridegroom, at any time. But what does it look like for us to be ready? Does it look like dropping everything, sitting down, kind of like in a waiting room? Not at all. The fourth parable tells us how we are to live in the in-between. Look with me at Matthew 25 from verse 14 to 30, the parable of the talents. It's one that may or may not be familiar to you. This parable describes investing money over a long period of time before the master returns. And just this week, I celebrated my three-year anniversary working in financial services, specifically in pensions. And it may not sound that exciting to you, but 
you'll appreciate pension administrators one day, and um, maybe some of you already do. Um, <laughs> in just three years, I've seen the stock market impacted by Brexit, COVID, the war in Ukraine. It's been a bit of a wild ride. But why do we put money into pensions? Well, we do it for the hope of a future financial return and security in our retirement. You can come chat to me after about potential business, and uh, I can keep my bosses happy. <laughs> it could be easy for us to turn this parable into a story about financial security and wise stewarding of money. And I think these things are important to talk about. It's good to be wise in the way we steward our finances whilst also being radically generous. But that's a conversation for a different time. Instead, this parable is about how we live in anticipation of Christ's return. The master gives talents, which are essentially big bags of money, to his servants according to their ability. See the wisdom and the kindness of the master, even in the way that he knows his servants' abilities and gives accordingly. The first servant receives five talents and makes five talents more. The second servant receives two talents and makes two talents more. And he gives the third servant one talent, but the third servant digs a hole in the ground. It sounds a bit weird to us, but it was a common way of keeping something safe at the time. And kind of makes you wonder, if you went around with a spade digging, what you would find. He puts the money in the ground and dug it up at the return of the master, just as it was. The master then returns to settle accounts of his servants, and he's overjoyed at the work of the first two servants. He congratulates them and then invites them to share in his joy. He even lets them keep the money they've made and then gives them more and more. What a great master. I'd love to work for this guy. He knows exactly what the servants are capable of. He's overjoyed at what they've done and then even extends his joy to them. But the third servant doesn't seem to agree. He believed the master to be a hard man and was afraid of him. The actions of the wicked servant serve as a window to his heart. They are an external sign of an internal problem. He does not know the master. He does not care about the master. And his work shows us this. Now, there's a lot of talk in these chapters about reward for good works. And this can get us a bit nervous when we read passages like this in our Bible. We believe wholeheartedly in justification by faith alone, in the grace of God in saving us. We've heard it here this morning that no good work we do earns our salvation. It's completely his grace. But the Bible makes clear that with salvation comes a changed heart, no longer hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. The Lord promises to write the law on our hearts, and the book of James reminds us that faith without works is dead. We don't do good works to earn our salvation. We do good works because our hearts have been transformed by an encounter with the kindness and generosity of the master who invites us to participate in his work. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which have been prepared in advance for us to walk in. So how do we live as we wait for the return of Christ? We live in eager anticipation and faithful obedience. What has he entrusted to you today? Perhaps it's faithfully serving on one of our kids' teams, behind the scenes where most people won't see. Well done, 
good and faithful servant. Perhaps it's your fledgling home group that feels small and challenging. You've just started it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or perhaps it's simply your regular nine-to-five office job where you work hard and diligently with integrity. Well done, good and faithful servant. What you do now matters. And in the words of the commentator, Don Carson, for those of good heart, this will be more than a responsibility. It will be a challenge, a joy, a privilege. Friends, let us be people who do good because our hearts have been transformed through encounter with Jesus. When we see him, we are changed. Now we've reached uh, the last part of our text, and I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear that we're almost there. It's a bit heavy, and we've done so well (laughs) to get here. (laughs) In the last part of our text, Jesus talks of the separation of two types of people on his return. Now, I live with two people, and uh, don't read too much into this illustration. Um, And sometimes I get a bit mixed up as to who I've spoken to about one thing or the other. Now, I shouldn't get uh, too confused. Um, One of them has a beard and has always had a beard, despite attempts to um, get him to shave it during lockdown. And um, the other is clean-shaven. But also, they're both a year older than me. They're both a couple of inches taller than me, and they have to duck to get into our kitchen. And... Sometimes I think I've told one story to one, and it turns out it was the other, and it gets a bit confusing. Sometimes when there's a group of people all together, you can get a bit mixed up. Sorry, what was your name again? Oh, um, you're the one who studies medicine? Well, I guess art and medicine sound similar. (laughs) In Jesus' time, shepherds often had mixed heads of sheep and goats. And a quick Google search of Palestinian sheep and goats will show you that they actually look a lot more similar to each other than our sheep and goats do over here. On the surface and in a crowd, they look the same. But at night, the shepherd would need to separate them as the goats were a bit more skinny and they needed to huddle together inside to stay warm. Jesus goes on in chapter 25, verse 31, to say this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. A consistent theme of these two chapters is a divisive separation between two groups of people. In chapter 24, we read of two men in a field. One is taken and one remains. Two women at a mill, one is taken and one remains. The ten bridesmaids in our parable, five who go into the feast and five who miss out. The two faithful servants and the wicked servant who respectively enter into the joy of the master and are cast out into darkness. At the coming of the Son of Man, the people will be separated as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. To one group, the invitation will be one of receiving the kingdom of God, prepared for them before the foundation of the world. But to the other group, eternal punishment. Friends, note the weight of the eternal significance of these words. At his coming, the secrets of all our hearts will be revealed. And as we've seen throughout our passage, it is those who do not know Jesus who miss out. The bridegroom says to the bridesmaids, depart from me for I never knew you. 
He describes the place that they go as being filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is what it looks like in eternity when you don't know God. Outside of the one who is life, who is love, there is pain and there is death. But his invitation is to come, to know him. You see that Jesus is coming a second time, but he has already come a first time. And in his coming, he made a way that we can be brought back into relationship with God. We'll see in the coming weeks all that his death achieved for us. But today, there is an invitation to come. You know that in another gospel, Jesus describes himself as the door for the sheep, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Um, he says that he has sheep that he will bring in who will listen to his voice. Do you hear his call today? Can you hear the voice of the good shepherd who came to give life abundantly? He says elsewhere that eternal abundant life is found in knowing him. Do you know him today? You see, you can't piggyback your way in of someone else. You have to know him personally. Almost 10 years ago, I was invited to church by a friend, but it wasn't his invitation that brought me into relationship with God. It was the call of the good shepherd who warmed my heart to him by his spirit and brought me to his father. I responded personally, and you too can respond personally today. Do you hear his voice? Can you feel your heart being warmed? You can respond to him today. And for the rest of us who would say that we know him, who have encountered the good shepherd, do we long for his return? Are we like the bride who longs for just another glimpse at the bridegroom? Do we long for the making right of all things, the new age where heaven and earth meet and all pain and tears will be wiped away? The king is coming again, and he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Perhaps we could have the band up. Now, just as um, the band starts to play, I'm going to finish by reading a hymn by the 18th century pastor John Newton, the same guy that wrote Amazing Grace that we sang this morning. Day of judgment, day of wonders, hark the trumpet's awful sound, louder than a thousand thunders, shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day as vine. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near you blessed, see the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. Amen.